Hi, welcome to uh, The Brook. My name is Mitchie Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Honored and excited that we could connect together in this moment, in this way. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the book of Ephesians. It's towards the end of our Bibles. The book of Ephesians is where we're going to be today. We're going to begin in chapter one, but we're actually going to end in chapter four. We're in the series A people where we're looking at the marks that mark us and move us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God. We're unpacking the values that describe, define, and ultimately drive us serving as vehicles for our growth. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the value that we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. We become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. And so there is this desire for our hearts to be awakened to and captured by God's plan for human flourishing. That throughout the scriptures, God unfolds this comprehensive and expansive plan for human flourishing. And when we say human flourishing, we don't necessarily mean this utopic animals frolicking in the wind type scene, but we mean life as it should be. Life as God intends it to be attached to life with Jesus where there's weight and beauty to it. Now, when we get to the third value, we're going to dive deeper into that comprehensive and expansive plan for human flourishing. But the reason why we're bringing it up even now is because the summation of human flourishing is often described with the word kingdom. And there is an experience attached to the kingdom called shalom. Shalom is this robust words scattered throughout the scriptures that is often translated by peace or as peace. But it's way more involved than that. So often when we think about peace, we we tend to think about the absence of certain things. And so even when we use phrases like I'm protecting my peace, when we use that as it relates to relationships, I'm protecting my peace usually means I'm canceling you because you're a threat to my peace. But when the scriptures speak about peace and shalom, it's not necessarily just the absence of certain things. It's the presence of certain things. In fact, the center of shalom is this idea or concept of complete and whole wholeness. And even taking into consideration the various dynamics and complexity of life, the domains of life, the pieces of our lives, if you will. Shalom means that all of the pieces fit in the right space. They fit in place appropriately, creating wholeness. And so uh, some of our friends are puzzle fanatics. And so early on um, in our time in Miami specifically, if you walked into our house, you would just see puzzle pieces scattered on the floor as they try to import their passion into our children, right? And so with all of these puzzle pieces scattered on the floor, uh, they would get our children to start to create this picture 
based on what was on the box. And they would start with the corners and judicially they would move towards the center to create this picture. But because my kids were super young at the time, they're still young now, but they didn't have this well-developed patience muscle. Actually, they still don't have this well-developed patience muscle, but because they didn't have it back then, they would just kind of force the pieces to fit. Now the adults who were enthusiastic, they would, they would enter in and say, no, don't do it this way. And they would systematically, thoughtfully, and progressively try to move the pieces into the right position in a way that accords with the ultimate picture. That is what shalom looks like when it's a verb and a noun. That when it's a verb, it's to move towards wholeness and restoration. And when it's a noun, when it's used as a noun, it's to actually experience that wholeness and restoration. This is the beauty of the good news of the gospel. That God says that there's this deep experience of wholeness. There's life. Do you want it? There's peace. You could have it. There's purpose. Come grab it. There's joy. It's resistance. There is this glorious, wonderful experience that God would have for us if we believe in Jesus Christ. But this experience, God's picture of wholeness, it isn't primarily individual in nature. In fact, it's utterly communal that what God lays bare in front of us without any shame or hiding is that there's an interconnectedness between our personal wholeness and our experience in community. That there's an interconnectedness between personal wholeness and experience in community. That that is the picture God gives us. It's why this value that should describe us, define us, and drive us is actually also a daring claim that we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. That the more connected we become, the more whole we become. Personally, collectively, with expressions all around us. This is why Ephesians is helpful and why we're going to be in there for the remainder of our time, because that experience of wholeness, that experience of knownness, I just made that word up, but that collision of of intimacy is meant to be experienced deepest and in its fullest sense in the environment of family. That in the context of family, we are afforded the opportunity, we should be afforded the opportunity to be fully known, fully loved, and made fully whole. And when God sees his people, he sees them as a family. God's plan for all people everywhere is that they would be pulled into his family and God's perspective of his actual people is that they are a family, not metaphorically, not an illustration to describe them, but their actual identity. And in the book of Ephesians, it paints this glorious picture of the majesty of God in Christ through the church, his family. And the starting point, the starting rhythm, habit, or stream for cultivating this value is reimagining family. 
And I know that may be triggering for some of us for a variety of reasons, but God invites us to reimagine family through his eyes. And I can't think of a better book other than Ephesians to allow us to see what it could be like if we start to reimagine and then adjust to the family God offers us to become part of. And so as we move through the text, there's really three questions that we're going to identify and answer. And it's why is family the identity and not an illustration of the people of God? Why is family an identity and not primarily of illustration of the people of God? And then we're going to move to this other question, which is why is it that what makes the church wonderful can also be what makes the church frustrating? Why is it that what makes the church wonderful can also often be what makes the church frustrating? And then how do we step into what God sincerely wants for us? Like, how do we step into what God sincerely wants for us? So, so that would be the move of our time, like dealing with those three questions. And we're actually going to look at three passages to do that. Starting in verse three, read with me. It reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What we just read is a picture of the eternal and glorious plan for God to demonstrate his expansive and powerful love towards people. That the plan of God before he even formed the world was to create people in his image after his own likeness and then bring them into relationship with him where he is their father. And you just start to see these. I mean, we could just live. We could just li we could live in these verses because there's just so many rich and robust implications regarding that. But here's what we have to know. The reason why for us family isn't an illustration, but it actually is identity is because the fatherhood of God isn't a metaphor. It's who he is. God's fatherhood isn't a metaphor. It's a statement of his identity. So some 165 times in the Gospels alone, he is referenced as father. Another 80 plus times in the New Testament writings, he is referenced as father. Three times in the first 17 verses of Ephesians chapter one, he is referenced as father. 
And every single chapter in the book of Ephesians, at least one time, he is referenced as Father. It is who he is. It is the decisive disclosure of how he wants to be related to. Father, that he sets the standard of what it means to be father, not metaphor, not figurative language, but statement of identity. See, like figurative language and metaphor, we use that when we try to communicate something, but it feels like we don't have the words to fully describe it. Or when we see something is precious and wonderful and we're trying to use verbose, vivid language to describe it. So my freshman year in college, um, I used to write poetry for a variety of causes and companionship. It, uh, plum foolery was, <laughs> was that year um, for me. But whenever I would write poetry for companionship, what would happen would uh, inevitably some, some lady, would, she would say, man, you're Nigerian. Can you speak African? Uh, to me. And, you know, several things, several things happened in my head at that, at that moment, every single time. The first was, uh, yeah, I am in Waco, Texas. So this makes sense. This is part for the course. Uh, the next was, man, Africa is actually a continent and Nigeria is a country within this continent. And so there's a variety of languages, not African. And even Amongst Nigerians, there's a variety of tribes, so there's a variety of languages as well. So speak African doesn't really compute with me. And so after my racial radar stopped blaring and like my spot senses stopped tingling, I would usually utter this phrase, Ishiokoka. And they'd be like, oh, what that mean? And I'd be like, oh, what it means is like when the when the when the, the moon reflects. It's rays, like your, your eyes are so beautiful. They're like, oh my gosh. I was like, yeah, like your eyes are like as beautiful as the rays of the moon. All of that in that phrase? Yeah, sure. Clearly that's not what that meant. But again, that was plum foolery. That's figurative language. You're trying to communicate something that may be precious or significant. So you're using vivid or verbose language. That is not the way Jesus or God talks about his fatherhood. They talk about his fatherhood as a template for which we are to understand everything else as it relates to father. And so when Jesus and Matthew is starting to build out from the prayer he gives them in, in chapter six, he says, look, even you being evil as a father know how to give good gifts, but the standard isn't being evil and giving good gifts. The standard is being good and giving good gifts. And you know who creates that standard? Your father who's generous. And so even if you go back to the prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That, that when Jesus is inviting the disciples to pray, to be relationally connected with God, he says, begin by saying our Father, and there's several attributes of God that we're even able to see in that prayer that teach us what fatherhood is like. That, that God is a father who's accessible, that we actually pray to him, and he's not bothered by what bothers us. He's a father who is generous. That's Matthew 7, but it's back to this prayer 
where he, he actually moves towards us in kindness. He's a father that's personal. That's our father that he's intimately connected with us, personal. God is a father who is powerful, father in heaven. His, his home is the heavens, the cosmos, throne above all of this. Personal, powerful, and worthy. God is a father who is worthy. Hallowed be your name. That for something to be hallowed means that you're treating it altogether differently. And what's fascinating, what should be treated differently is his name, which is not just what you call somebody, but specifically who they are, their attributes. And so you get to Psalm 68 and God introduces himself as a father to the fatherless, a defender of the weak. So God is a father who's just. All of these become the standard of how we're supposed to see fatherhood and they become the invitation to how God wants to relate to us. The people of God aren't play cousins. <laughs> we're brothers and sisters because God actually is a father. And again, that may trigger some of us because of family dynamics and the pervasiveness of fatherlessness. Some of that fatherlessness is attached to the American dream on steroids that elevates the individual self above all else. And the natural casualties of that are the vulnerable and the most vulnerable among us are often children. And so they get left behind and even unborn children become bargaining chips for votes. So the American dream out of control creates pervasive fatherlessness as well as mass incarceration because of the criminalization of communities of colors and the removal of fathers from the home. So there's all of these experiences of fatherlessness as well as experiences of people who don't meet any of that standard of generosity, of accessibility, of personal, which means this emotional con like connection and powerful. And so there's all of these experiences of bad fatherhood that affect how we relate to God as father. And specifically, if you're a man, you may have had one of those experiences. So you know what you may have said to yourself? I'm going to be for others what I don't feel like was for me. And man, that's understandable and it's redemptive. But you know what's remarkable about being part of the family of God and what he offers us by not actually being play cousins, but really being brothers and sisters is you could go out and redeem what it means to be a father to your children. But who gets to redeem what it means to be a father to you, God does. And if you've grown up in that space and you have brothers and sisters and there's brokenness all throughout the family dynamic, who gets to redeem what it means to be brothers and sisters in a healthy family with a loving and present father we do? This is beautiful, but it also <laughs> causes frustration because Implicit and explicit to that is commitment that we go the extra mile for and with family, that we move more tenderly with family, that we don't just cast off 
people when they're part of the family. But there's other dynamics that are (laughs) beautiful. I mean, it makes the church wonderful, but it also can frustrate us. It's found in chapter three. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That the mystery of God's majestic work, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is this unique intimacy we have with him, this unique intimacy we have with each other as brothers and sisters, God as our father, and this unique diversity, this unique unity with diversity that reflects the profound love of God. Diversity isn't just a good idea. It's God's design. That it is built into humanity and it is built into how God wants to carve out a people from all people who know him. This is why even you get down to verse 10 and it talks about this is a manifold wisdom of God. This multi-layered, multi-dimensional like expression of God's wisdom is the union of different people. People with historic hate and animosity that's understandable being brought not just into the same space, but being brought into the same family. Not just a good idea. God's design. Diversity describes and defines who the family of God is. We know about IQ, your intelligence, your intelligence quotient. In the mid-2000s, there's been a rise, rightfully so, with EQ, your emotional quotient. And like, are you growing in your EQ, becoming more emotionally mature and healthy, able to understand where your emotions come from, what they're doing inside your heart, and how they're affecting a variety of relationships. But this generation will be defined and the generation to come by our cultural competency, our ability to recognize that other cultural narratives aren't just welcomed, but they're necessary to get a complete picture, cultural competency. Our ability to affirm difference, to affirm that which is different without appropriating that which is different, cultural competency. Our ability to see people not primarily through their ethnicity, but seeing them as fellow image bearers made after God's likeness. Not erasing the ethnicity, but embracing and celebrating it because the scriptures don't erase it. You don't get that anywhere. You don't get the erosion of distinction and 
like difference in the scripture. You get the identification and celebration of distinction and difference and then showing how they fit together wholeness. It's wonderful, but it can also be frustrating because difference is sometimes uncomfortable. Often it's uncomfortable and we like comfort. We like comfort. We don't like to feel like we have to walk on eggshells because we don't know how something is going to be received if it's said. We don't like that. But here's the thing about comfort. Comfort is not a bad thing. It's just a terrible God. It is not the thing that should drive every single decision. And in environments where there's unity with diversity, we are signing up for experiences of discomfort. But the unity and the security thereof allows us to walk humbly, courageously, and lovingly, knowing that we are participating in something powerful, that we are experiencing family the way God would intend it to be. And places like Miami make that both easy and difficult because it's easy to confuse the presence of diversity with participating in diverse life. You want to measure meaningful diversity? Look at the dinner table, not just the living room. Look at who you're spending meals with. You want to measure it? Look at meaningful conversations where you have to wrestle through fumbling words and figuring out where other perspectives really are, seeking to understand before being understood. You want to measure it? Look at meaningful solidarity, meaningful acts of solidarity where we could stand side by side with difference, knowing that there is affirmation that doesn't mean wholesale agreement, that I could affirm you, I could affirm perspectives that you may have based on personal experiences without even saying that I agree with them wholesale. And the environment for all of that is the family of God. Different people from all across the globe with different historic cultural narratives that shape them being brought not just into the same room, but into the same family, looking like Publix at six, but feeling like the dinner table at seven. It's wonderful, but it can be frustrating. It actually moves us to how we step into this well. So Ephesians chapter four starts off like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he just starts to unpack just a variety of diversity that exists in the body, not just around social, cultural, economic, or ethnic lines, but specifically around the giftedness that there's these gifts that God gives his people so that they could work together tools to build up towards a specific 
aim and you get down to verse 13 until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head and to Christ that there's this book ending of love, like really just all throughout Ephesians, you just have these marks of love, these marks and moves of love. And right here, he just starts to unpack the variety of dynamics that express love. So he starts off, he says, I urge you, I'm pleading with you, walk worthy, walk in light of what it means to experience and receive the love of God as father and now be engrafted into this tremendous thing called the family of God, the church. Walk worthy, walk differently, walk in love that you step into what God sincerely wants for us by stepping in with love. This decisive, continuous act that seeks to serve this decisive continuous act that decenters preference and recenters unity this decisive and continuous act that is willing to be wronged not in this weird passive pushover sign myself up for abuse space dead that but is willing to be wronged for the purpose of building family You step in with love, but you also step in seeing that that means love is war. Like we like the romanticized dynamics of love, but there's a grittiness there. Bear with one another, impatience, speaking the truth in love. That that entails this, this ethic, not just of what we say, but how we live. So it's attached to the end of chapter four, verse 25, where he talks about put away all falsehood, drop the mask, bring the real you to the table with love guiding you, truth guiding you so that we could produce something that is most necessary an experience of family where we're able to be made whole again, restored rightly with God, redeeming all the aspects of our life that have been broken as we walk together. We step in and we see that this is for the long haul. We step in with love, asking questions. What does love require of us? Not from the standpoint of obligatory duty and responsibility, but from the standpoint and position of actual relationship. If you have believed and received the truth of Jesus. God is your father and we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we must reimagine how that truth creates an environment for us to grow and become whole, being known without fear, fully loved, accepted, moving towards wholeness and shalom. Pray with me. God, um, we need you because all of that is supernatural. (laughs) 
all of that is supernatural. But this is your plan and you are working it out. And this is why Paul says that we would have eyes to see and the strength of heart to comprehend the breadth, the depth, the scope of this love and the implications all around us. So God, that's a prayer. Give us eyes. Give us strength of heart so that we can regularly reimagine what it means to be the family of God in the moments that we're in. In your name we pray, Jesus.